Hi, this is Kev Legs Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. Right, well, I am delighted to say that I'm now joined by Tom McGuinness from, amongst other things, the Blues Band, who are appearing at this year's Nantwich Jazz Blues and Music Festival. Good evening, Tom. I hope you're well. I am, and I'm looking forward to coming to Nantwich again. Excellent, excellent. Well, like I said, we're talking with you in your capacity as member of the Blues Band, but you're still active in other ventures, so maybe we can touch on those later. Of course. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still active in the local Red Cross, and... um, I'm joking, Kev. <laughs> I used to be in the Red Cross myself years ago. You <laughs> <laughs> defected to the St John's Ambulance. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, now, was the band something that had been discussed for some time, or did it just develop from a meeting of old friends? The Blues Band. The Blues Band, yeah. It came together because uh, Paul was working in the theatre, and uh, uh, he got a hankering for playing in a band again. Mm. But only for one night a week, at the most. Yeah. Uh, or if you could get there after the theatre, if you see what I mean. You know, finish yeah. at 9.30, be on stage at 10 o'clock. Yeah. So he rang me up and said, do you fancy getting a band together to do a couple of gigs? Because a guy who ran a pub in East London called the Bridge House, Canning Town, which was a seven nights a week music venue. You don't get many of them anymore. No. In he, um, Paul used to go down there and see people like Eddie and the Hot Rods and uh, and that sort of thing. And um, the owner said to him, well, if you ever get a band together, you've got a gig. And Paul rang me up and said, um, do you fancy doing a couple of gigs in a pub? And I said, uh, yes, Paul, as long as it's just a couple of gigs in a pub, because <laughs> I'm quite busy. And uh, here we are, probably a couple of thousand gigs later, still, <laughs> still doing it. And uh, he rang me up and said, you got any ideas? Who else might be interested? And Huey Flint was an old friend and neighbor, and we'd been together in McGinnis Flint. And, you know, he had a pedigree going back to John Mayle and the Beano album. So I asked Huey, and Huey said, yeah. And then it was just the three of us for a while. And then uh, another friend said he'd... Um, he just had his laundry delivered by Dave Kelly. Um, Dave was in between bands at that moment, and Dave, uh, I rang up Dave. Mm. And uh, apparently I didn't sort of make things very clear to Dave, because <laughs> first, first of all I said, I'm getting a band together with Paul, and would you be interested in coming along for a... I, didn't say, I probably didn't say rehearsal to play, and we'll see how it goes on. Yeah. And do you know any bass players? And he said, well, yeah, I do know this guy, uh, Gary Fletcher. And I said, okay, well, we've booked this place Saturday afternoon, come along. And um, all I'd said to him, I was getting a band together with Paul and Huey, and he didn't know who was who. He thought, after he'd been there a while, he thought, that bloke looks like Paul Jones. Um, So it was all very casual, Kev, that thing. Uh, it wasn't meant to be uh, a long-term project, but often, um, in the immortal words of John Lennon, life is what happens in between your plans. <laughs> so, you know, this wasn't planned at all, and like many of the best things in life, it's worked out really well. Mm. Well, you've had a love of the blues genre right from the start, so was there a particular track or artist that caught your attention? Well, really, I came to the blues from rock and roll. Yeah. 
Uh, I didn't come to it from the acoustic side, like Big Bill Brunsey, like, uh, you know, other people that I know did come to it from there. I came to it because uh, rock and roll arrived for me, you know, 55, 56, and I thought it was the most wonderful thing. I mean, it was just, it seemed so exotic and unusual and different from everything that was going on around. It's different if you're in America. If you're growing up white in America, you would be hearing this music. Mm. Maybe your parents wouldn't like you listening to it, but you'd be hearing black R&B music all the time. Uh, but over here, we weren't hearing anything. Then rock and roll appeared out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, Lonnie Donegan, of course, got me playing a guitar. But what then led me on was music like hearing Chuck Berry hearing Bo Diddley and sort of tracking sideways from there and mm. and being led to um, Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and John Lee Hooker, Elmore James, all those names. Jimmy Reed, who's almost forgotten now in the great pantheon of blues people. But if there was one record, it was hearing Smokestack Lightning on wow. the radio on a program. Uh, I just thought, oh. You know, this has something of the excitement that rock and roll brought to me. What is it? Where's it come from? And of course, pretty quickly you find out the connections. You know, Chess Records, mm -hmm. O Deadly, Chuck Berry, both on Chess Records. Yeah. And then, um, you know, one thing led to another. Not that it was easy to get any of the records. Uh, well, you had to, there you are had the to stories of the the merchant seamen bringing the stuff over from America. Yeah, I never had that experience of anyone uh, bringing them in in that way. But, you know, uh, I do remember being told about a man having a... I can't remember now if it was a Muddy Waters album or a John Lee Hooker album, and I lived in Wimbledon, South London. Mm. He lived in Tootings. I don't even know who he was. I got an address, and I went and knocked on the door. <laughs> and uh, his mum came to the door. Well, I presume it was mum, and I said, uh, does so-and-so live here? And she said, yes. Um, I said, could I just see him for a minute? And he came to the door, and I said, do you have a Muddy Waters album? <laughs> and he looked at me, you know, with puzzlement, and said, yes. I said, can I look at it? <laughs> and he came to the front door and held it up for me, and I said, can I hold it? <laughs> I didn't run away with it, you know, oh. I just sort of held it in my hand, looked at the cover, looked at the back of it, and handed it back to... It was so difficult to find anything. But then, about 61, 62, Pi International, um, part of the Pi Record Group, started putting out a lot of chess stuff. So suddenly you could get Muddy Waters live at Newport, or mm. um, uh, Down and Out Blues, Sonny Boy Williamson, and stuff. Stuff which had been exotic and unobtainable, um, you know, yeah. we, got, we, we got it. But uh, I didn't even have a, re a record player at the time, to tell you the truth. I didn't have any money. <laughs> 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 I grew up in a very poor family. We, the first uh, uh, record player I got was when I joined Man from Man, and we were successful. I had a wind-up gramophone, you know, for playing oh, 78s. Yes. But my girlfriend then, who... Um, she had a record player, so I did start buying records, but um, well, I left them. At, I left them at her house. Well, prior to Manfred Man, <laughs> you were briefly in the Roosters with Eric Clapton and Brian Jones and Paul Jones as well. Was <laughs> that your first? <laughs> this is a total myth. 
Is Paul it? Paul and Brian Jones were never in it. Eric helps to spread this myth about Paul <laughs> being in it. I think Paul probably came to a rehearsal once and didn't even sing with us. Right. And Brian Jones certainly wasn't in it. Right. Uh, Paul and Brian Jones tried to get a band together in about 61. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. And then uh, Paul joined Manfred Mann in late 61, I think it was. Yeah. Or was it 62? I can't remember. Uh, it was 62. And Brian Jones started getting the Stones together in 62. And uh, I got a band together with Eric Clapton in 63 called The Roosters. Yeah. Uh, and we used to play, uh, we actually opened for Manfred Mann at the Marquee. But well, only twice, because <laughs> we had an argument about money and then we never went back. <laughs> we, we weren't getting enough. A pound each wasn't enough, we felt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've been there, been there, my friend. Uh, but uh, when you joined Man for Man, you were playing bass, which you described as a necessity for the band to be able to play Bo Diddley type numbers. Is that true? Well, well, I joined on bass. I'd never played bass. Uh, I'd played guitar, but mm. they were looking for another bass player. Their bass player was a really talented player, a guy called Dave Richmond who went on to have a very successful career as a session player, you know, even playing on some of Paul Jones' solo records and playing on Tom Jones' records Mm. and Tiller Black records. You know, he was the in-demand bass player in the 60s and onwards. Uh, But he was... um, (sighs) He wanted to play more notes than were really called for in playing R&B. And, uh, you know, he wasn't happy just laying down a solid... God, no, what can I say? I wasn't playing with him. They weren't happy with him. And they decided they wanted someone else. And uh, I lied my way into the job. I told Paul I was playing bass with a local band in Wimbledon. Uh, So Paul told the other guys in the band. And um, on the basis of a brief interview at a gig, the next day I was in the band. Mm. uh, Which was the very first time I'd ever played a bass guitar. (laughs) I went on stage at the Ealing Club and they handed me the bass guitar that was the property of the band and I plugged in and uh, and I was away. Yeah. Uh, I but I'd promised to play simply. Yeah. Uh, which, given that I'd never played bass guitar before, was a very easy promise to make <laughs> and, and keep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But well, I, sw- I was really a guitar player, and yeah. although I played bass for about 18 months, I think it was, uh, Jack Bruce came in and, re- you know, and I switched over to guitar, which was, yeah. was and remains my first love. Well, this was all around the start of the British blues boom. So was there a rivalry between the bands, or was there a sharing of inspirations? There wasn't a rivalry at all. It was really a matter of just being knocked out that anyone else liked the music you liked. Mm. You know, to find there were people... Well, I'd been going to see the Stones throughout 1963 when they were playing at the Station Hotel in Richmond. And, you know, they they knocked me out as a band then. It was a great band, especially... You know, Ian Stewart was an integral part of it uh, on piano. And Brian Jones was a fantastic bottleneck player. You know, no one was playing... No, that's not true, because Cyril Davis played a bit of bottleneck, but, you know, Brian really got it together. Mm. Um, uh, but to know the Stones were there, and then, uh, you know, to hear about the Spencer Davis group and Steve up in Birmingham and the animals, and no, I never felt any rivalry at all. When the Stones had a hit, I was knocked out, because a band doing something that I wanted to do 
mm. was having a hit when uh, when we had a big hit with Manfred Mann. I think we were knocked off the top of the charts by the animals with House of the Rising Sun, and I was knocked out because the animals were doing something akin to what we were doing. You know, I, I've never found um, I've never found rivalry to be much of a feature of the music industry no. and I'm, I say industry in the broadest sense you know I mean just I don't think uh, I, I've just not run across it people are delighted for other people's success mm. well, if, they're, if they're doing something you're interested in it I mean I have no I, I wish them all the luck in the world but I've got no interest in anyone who's come up through a pop talent show on the television but uh, you know, it just doesn't speak to me. That's yeah, it. they've not earned their stripes. Um, no, no, I don't think that. Luck pays. I don't think you've got to pay your dues or anything like that. I think that's a load of artistic bullshit. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, which artists use to compensate for the fact they, ha you know, that someone's a bit of an overnight success. Very few people are an overnight success. They've yeah. been working at it for years, even if you've never heard of them or not known what they're doing. Uh, but maybe not, you know, but it's all luck. Uh, yeah. I, I met so many talented people along the way who didn't get the breaks. Mm. I well, got a break, I got a few breaks. A lot of the American blues artists came over during the 60s. You must have seen or even performed with a lot of those. Uh, I, said, I didn't see many of them because I was working by then, you see, right. gigging. So unless we happened to be in the same gig at the same time, I didn't see much of them because... I found a diary quite recently for Manfred Mann in 1964, and I didn't have a day off right. in 1960. Not only that, we, you know, I would do a gig on a Monday night, and Tuesday morning we'd be at EMI recording until 1 o'clock. Then we'd go and do a radio program. Then we'd go off and do the next gig. So it wasn't just a matter of doing gigs. We were fitting recordings and TV and radio in around them. So, I, But I did get to, you know, I, I got to see... Uh, two or three of the blues packages that came over mm. the uh, the big you know you'd get a bill which would have sort of Willie Dixon and uh, Otis Spann Muddy Waters Lonnie Johnson yeah Victorious but I've forgotten what they called the festivals that came over but I saw them two of them. but I did get to play with Sonny Boy Williamson at least twice at the yeah. marquee he sat in and I played at the marquee with Otis Spann when he sat in with Man From Man and I played with uh, Matt Murphy as well. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that was that was good. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was weird, Kev, because, you know, 1963, these are just names on record. Mm. Uh, and 1964, they're coming over here, they're, play, they're appearing on Ready, Steady, Go and things yeah. like that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm getting to play with them. I can't believe, you know, it's a bit like dying, going to heaven. <laughs> there's a classic it, clip of the Rolling there Stones. there is no heaven. Yeah, <laughs> there's a classic clip of the Rolling Stones, and uh, someone's interviewing Brian Jones, and he says, yeah, yeah, but Howling Wolf's going to play, let's watch him. And they're, they're like <laughs> kids in the sweet shop. <laughs> I could tell you a long anecdote about that and Arthur Connolly and his road manager, but it, it's too long for the road <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> Okay. Well, the blues band there, the first release, the official blues band bootleg album, was yeah. that a self-funded project? It was. Uh, people kept coming up to us at gigs and saying we'd really like to buy a record. And uh, we, you know, because we'd started out with very low ambitions, 
just to do two gigs um we um we, we we'd never thought of making a record we never thought it could be successful but it, people kept asking for it and we um we did some recording at the hope and anchor in um, in islington uh, and a track from it was added to um, I think I forgot I think it was called R&B at the Hope and Anchor we were on there with the Pirates and I think Dr. Feelgood and stuff like that um, but we got the rest of the tapes and then we we'd um, we got a manager who was quite a live wire and he got us into a small studio for very little expense and we laid down you know, in fact I think the studio was owned by Tommy Steele right um, and we did some, uh, we put some, some down, and we just, um, we pressed up a, hun a thousand of them, and we put them in cardboard covers, signed the thousand, and numbered them, one to a thousand. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, there used to be a record chain called Our Price. Oh yes, yes. And Our Price in London took a hundred. Yeah. And. Uh, we literally did. We delivered them to the shop. One of I think it was Gary Fletcher delivered them to our price, and we were still up in the stu in the our manager's office, still signing cardboard covers and packing packing the records. It really was DIY. When the phone rang and it was our price saying, "Could they have another hundred? Because they sold a hundred in the lunchtime." <laughs> Which, you know, we had no inkling that this was going to happen. Yeah. Oh, as well as that, we'd handed out um, forms at gigs and people could fill them in and give us, you know, whatever it was, five pounds, ten pounds or something. And uh, and we'd, we'd uh, give them a copy of the record when we made it. Yeah. All very trusting. <laughs> and we did. We personally delivered records to people. There'd be a knock on the door. There'd be a member of the band delivering their records. <laughs> well, if my anyway, it all worked, and um, immediately record labels seeing that it was successful because we made the hour price charts in yeah. London. Well, seeing that we were successful, they thought, "Oh, you know," and suddenly we were being offered. Um, well, there was a competition to sign us, and uh, and uh, we got, you know. Well, if really, my research really nice record deal. If my research is correct, it was Simon Bates who championed your cause. Is that right? I've no idea. Right. Okay. I, 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 uh, I don't take much notice of, <laughs> of those facts. Right. I mean, I'm just noticing. Oh, we're selling records, but yeah. who champion? I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. But within no time at all, we're appearing on television. Yeah. You know, uh, it it helped with the pedigree, particularly having Paul. You know, hit records, solo star. Myself with the background in Manfred Mann and McGuinness Flint, Huey Flint with his pedigree playing with John Mayle, Georgie Fame, Savoy Brown. You know, it all um, it all added up. It made it 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 wasn't like an unknown band in no. some ways. No, uh, all those things helped. They opened doors. So yeah. yeah, we were suddenly appearing on television, and the album made the um, the UK album charts and did really well in places like Germany and Scandinavia and and um, you know it, it was funny because there we are playing just the blues that we love R&B mm. and uh, with no ideas of success and suddenly we're appearing on television yeah well the first time I saw the band was headlining at the first ever Colne Great British Blues Festival back in 1990 
and uh, now my information might be incorrect here but did you guys have something to do with creating that festival not a, I have no idea that we did I'm sure we didn't no I mean it could be that someone in the band perhaps lent some encouragement or something but no we had nothing to do I mean we by that time we're back on the road again we're, we're working every day yeah yeah. Um, no, I don't have... But, you know, what do I know? Someone else in the band <laughs> might tell you, oh, yeah, I remember saying and doing this, and that, yeah. I, but I don't think so. Well, also on the bill that year were King Pleasure and the Biscuit Boys, who oh, are yeah. also appearing at this year's Nantwich Jazz and Blues Festival. So, are they? Brilliant. Yeah. So I expect you, your paths cross quite a lot at these events. Um, yes and no, because quite honestly, when you're doing a festival, you tend to sort of get in and get out. Yeah. Um, not because you're disinterested, but, you know, if you're on at three in the afternoon, uh, it means you can get home by nine in the <laughs> evening <laughs> if you leave quickly after. Do you know what I mean? There yeah. Are, there are, there are, um, you'd be surprised how often you don't meet people when you're on the same bill as them. Right. Right. Um, unless they happen to be going on just before you or just after you, and then then you get a chance to say hello. But it, it's always very um, it's always very hurried at mm. festivals, unless you're deciding to hang around there and spend your time. But to be honest, you know, when I do something like Glastonbury, um, I arrive at the last minute and can't wait to leave. You know, <laughs> I, I, you know, the idea of being in a small town in the middle of a muddy field. Yeah. Yeah. Is uh, is unappealing. So, well, <laughs> <laughs> there's people who'd give their left arm. Well, not many guitarists, but there are people who would give their left arm to be at Glastonbury. And I'm one of those grumpy old men who thinks, <laughs> "Why are we doing Glastonbury again?" I I fully sympathise. <laughs> it, it's a long time since I've been. It, oh, it, it's just too big now. Anyway, um, but as well as the various bands you've been in, you've also released solo material. Is there any more on the horizon? Yeah, not on the near horizon. Uh, I, I, you know, I, with the two bands, I do about 120 gigs a year. Mm. And what with the travelling and everything, and I've got a huge family to stay in touch with, so I, um, I sort of tend to not have the time or the energy to devote to doing another one. But I am thinking that I should, and... Um, but it wouldn't be before next year. And in fact, we're already talking about maybe doing a new blues band album, right. which which would have to be next year because we're all so busy. And, um, and we're also talking about doing a Manfred's album right. of, of all new materials. So, uh, you know, my solo album takes quite low priority. But I've, uh, yeah... I might do. I might do. I'm not really. A, I'm. A, I'm a man who likes playing with other people rather than being out front. You yeah. Know? I like the the fact of the blues band. I can get to do two or three songs a night. Same with the Manfred. Yes. But uh, but you know, uh, I leave the serious singing to the uh, the good ones. Well, I still like Molten Barley Blues, don't knock it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't sing it. Graham Lyle did. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've seen you sing it. I have sung. I do sing it with the Manfreds. Yeah, <laughs> yes. no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm, I'm not being falsely modest. I uh, much more enjoy sort of being in the background and playing guitar and noodling away and sort of you know, right. 
Well, I mean, as we say, fun. you are appearing at this year's Nantwich Festival Easter weekend, and we're looking forward so much to seeing you here. Uh, I know you've been out with the Manfids lately. Have you got many gigs with the Blues Band? Well, the year gets split up with it between the two bands. So uh, this month I'm doing the Manfreds. Mm. Next month I'm doing the Blues Band. Right. Right. Uh, the month after that I'm doing the Manfreds. I think it just. And then, you know, when it gets to the summer and there's festivals and stuff, it tends to be a bit of both. Yeah. Um, but uh, right now, uh, we had a rare occurrence yesterday, a rehearsal by the Manfreds. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, to learn a few new things. So, um, yeah, I'm doing that at the moment. But, uh, in fact, the uh, Nantwich date will be the first time the Blues Band will have played together for about a month or six weeks, something like that, so... We'll all be fresh faced. <laughs> or else we'll have forgotten what we do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, and uh, we'll see you soon. Hopefully, I'll get to see you uh, when you appear in Nantwich. In Nantwich. Nice to talk to you, Kev. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye bye. And I hope you enjoyed that little interview there. And there will be more as we record more for the show. And we are going to delve into the archives and pull some of the old ones out as well. So, plenty more to come. And of course, if you want to hear the whole show, there is always Listen Again. I'll see you next time. Take care.